Wednesday. See the way I threw a syllable in there? January 4th, I'm Guy Adami, joined as always by my dear friend Dan Nathan. You're watching Market Call Macro, where we break down the biggest headlines of the day through the lens of the futures market. Today, we're looking at the stock market, bonds, gold, oil, and Bitcoin. And we have a fantastic guest for you. You know who he is. You better know who he is. Peter Bookvar of Bleakley Advisory Group will be here in just a few minutes. Today's market call is brought to you by our presenting sponsors, CME Group and Open Exchange. Dan, Nathan, how are you on this Tuesday morning? I'm doing well, Guy Adami. You got to give a shout out to our fine partners, Open Exchange. They power all of our market calls here. So we thank them very much. And how about that? CME Group stepping in here, Guy Adami. They are the sponsor of our podcast that we do with Danny Moses that drops every Friday in the podcast store. It's called On the Tape. Check that out. Sponsored by CME Group. So thanks for having them along. And Guy, you make a great point. We look at the market through different lenses on the market call yesterday we did it through the lens of charts through technical analysis very important input for both you and me as we think about the fundamentals and catalysts and we have carter braxton worth who joins us every monday live at 11 on market call charts here so today we're going to do it through the lens of the futures market guy because i think that's important i think people don't fully understand the importance of the futures market and how they affect all these different futures that we talk about affect everyday lives from buying homes to buying groceries to filling up your car with petrol as they say in the uk or the gasoline here it all's through that lens of the futures market so i think it's really important and oh by the way cme group also sponsors our twitter spaces on monday and wednesdays at 1 p.m eastern time so we're thrilled that they've joined us for the entire year we love the relationship we're looking to broaden it and we're doing it on this tuesday dan so i'm really excited yeah, me too. And I think the other point I would just make about Futures Guy is that one of the first jobs that I had in the business was to actually have a phone on my ear with a broker on the floor of the CME in Chicago, okay? And it was just quoting the S&P Futures all day. And then you know what I had to do? I had to be on call to actually look at the overnight, the minis that were trading, right? And in, in, in the Globex, remember the Globex? That's old school. So I think that the innovation over there as far as futures and the liquidity that they provide and the way that it allows investors of all sorts to kind of hedge books or make speculative sort of bets, that's what's really important here. All right, let's get into it, guy, because there's New year, ton of volatility here, man. We saw one thing yesterday. We saw the NASDAQ massively outperform the S&P 500. And today, we're seeing the S&P 500. It is early right now, massively outperform the NASDAQ. What's going on in the stock market? As we sit here right now, you have a Dow that's up north of 300 points. You have a NASDAQ that's down right around 200 points. I mean, we haven't seen a divergence like that in quite some time. And we'll talk about the reasons why. But, you know, J.P. Morgan, again, global stock market party, Dan, is far from over. And you know what? They're probably right. I mean, the beginning of the year, inflows and those types of things. Market probably continues to grind higher. What's funny to me is, you know, the higher it goes, the more bullish people get. That's what concerns me, I think, the most, Dan, is this overwhelming notion that the markets no longer can go lower. Well, it's interesting, Guy, that here we are a year later and we're talking about a Fed that's becoming a bit more hawkish. And, you know, at the time we saw rates in January of 2021 and in February, you know, start to make this move. And a lot of stock market strategists were saying that's OK. We've had unusually low interest rates with heavy accommodation and then a stock market 
like ours with the sort of innovation that we have and the sort of leadership we have should be able to absorb, right, higher rates, especially off such a low base. Well, let me just tell you this, guy. And, you know, we hadn't had a sell-off in the S&P 500 of greater than, what, five, five and a half percent or so all of 2021. That makes it one in like five years in 50 where we have not had a 10% peak to trough decline. So you tell me now, rates are starting to move on the low end, right? And we have stock market valuations for the most part, much higher and much higher than the five and 10 year average in the S&P 500. We have a bit of a runaway breakout here. What is your take? Well, this is a futures chart and it's interesting. You know, David Tepper, obviously the owner of the Carolina Panthers, and that's what a lot of people know him as today. But what what people should know him is, is one of the greatest investors of our time. And he makes this very simple. You know, when he sees the Federal Reserve adding liquidity, he flat out says, as long as I'm adding liquidity, don't fight the Fed. I mean, that's sort of his mantra. That's an old mantra, but he's really taken it and taken it to the next level. So if you think about that, don't fight the Fed, it's typically when they're adding liquidity, when the market's going higher. But that mantra should hold true regardless. And why would you not want to fight them on the way up and then seemingly are fighting them now when they're turning hawkish? Now, look, the market seems to be impervious, as I like to say all the time, to the upside. But if that mantra is true on the upside, it should be true on the downside. So you see this chart that we're looking at. The trend line comes in right around 4,600. That's a logical place of support. But again, that 200-day moving average at about 4,370, which we haven't seen in many, many months, if not a year and a half, has to be taken into consideration. And as this Federal Reserve turns hawkish, if you don't bet against the Fed on the way up, you shouldn't bet against them on the way conceivably down. Yeah, well, the higher we go in a straight line like we're in right now in these S&P futures right here, you know, the harder they come in when they ultimately do. Let's look at the NASDAQ futures, the NASDAQ 100, because to me, what's interesting here is it not made a new high, has not broken out the way the S&P 500 is. And, you know, you and I, Guy, talk about a lot of the concentration in the S&P 500 and in the NASDAQ 100. We have about five or six names that make up close to 25% of the weight of the S&P 500, and they make up about... 50% of the weight of the NASDAQ 100. And, you know, you and I were talking about it on Fast Money last night with the crew. You know, Apple near $3 trillion in market cap makes up nearly 7% of the weight of the S&P 500. It's becoming a little too big to fail. If you think about the Russell 2000, the entire small cap index of 2000 stocks is three and a half trillion, right? And so what happens here is these get bigger and we know Microsoft's not far behind and then Google and Amazon, we have a bunch of stocks now and NVIDIA and and Facebook and Tesla right around one trillion. We have a bunch of generals here, man, that are too big to fail. And if they were all to go in the same direction, maybe it's a valuation thing. Maybe it has to do with rates. Look at what's going on in the NASDAQ today, guy. Look at the devastation of some of these names that were super hard hit last year, down 30, 40, 50% from their highs. They're getting slayed today down five, six, seven, eight percent. What does that mean to you? Is it all about rates? Well, I think it's a lot to do with rates. And it's interesting, you know, rates were moving higher yesterday as well. And the Nasdaq didn't seem to care for whatever reason. And today, seemingly, it's beginning to care. I'm sure Peter Bookvar will have some thoughts on this. I'll say the following. You know, I've thought 10-year yields would close 2021, either side of 2%. That did not come to fruition. I think we got to about 177, obviously, back in March, and we got to about 17 again later in the fall. But here we are at 168 or so, and I think we're going to continue to grind higher. I think rates are going to be a problem for so many of these names that were, again, moving to the upside in a zero interest rate environment with valuations seemingly more 
important with rates going higher, I think that's going to be a problem. And I'm interested to see what Peter thinks. But again, that Nasdaq's bouncing up against that previous all-time high. Double top, we're going to find out. But anyway, I think we got to yeah. bring in Peter Bookvar because he does, Who's again, extraordinary it? work. Peter, you've heard what we've been talking about for the first nine minutes or so. What are your thoughts? Well, I agree. And I just want to talk about what markets were like in a tightening cycle pre-QE, thus pre-financial crisis, and then post. There was a pocket of time when markets were able to rally at the beginning of a rate hiking cycle. Remember the, the saying way back when, three steps and a stumble. The rule of thumb that the Fed, that third hike would eventually cause markets to respond because on the first few the rationale was, yeah, we can keep buying stocks because the Fed is raising for good reason. Therefore, we should be OK. And then eventually, of course, they hike until things slow down and then you get a market hiccup. But with QE, the purpose of QE, QE1 certainly tried to bail out the housing market by buying all the MBS and well, I should say bail out bank balance sheets. But really beginning with QE2, the purpose was to raise stock prices. And I'm going to read to you the editorial that Ben Bernanke wrote on November 4th, 2010 in the Washington Post. He talked about, yes, they did what they did with QE1. This approach eased financial conditions in the past and so far looks to be effective again. Stock prices rose and long-term interest rates fell and when investors began to anticipate this additional action blah, blah, blah. And higher stock prices will boost consumer wealth and help increase confidence, which can also spur spending. So there is a direct correlation between the Fed expanding their balance sheet and when they're not. And when we look at the notable rallies over the past 12 years since QE, it happened when the Fed was easing and doing QE, or at least maintaining the size of their balance sheet. But when QE1 ended, when QE2 ended, we, the S&P fell about 18% beginning a few weeks later. When QE3 was fully ended, we fell about 10% at the end. So here we are going through the next three months ending QE, whatever number you want to put on it, which is double the size of QE1 and QE2 combined and is 40% above QE3, which was called QE infinity. So to think that the stock market is going to be immune to the end of this round of QE, I think is mistaken because it's also happening with other central banks doing the same. Bank of England, QE is over. Bank of Canada, QE is over. The ECB will be ending their emergency program in March, partially mitigated by expanding the other, but the net result will be a slower rate of asset purchases. And therefore, there's going to be an impact. Now, yeah. then of course we have the rate hikes, but we got to get through QE first. And then we know that the economy is dependent on asset prices. So they're all intermingled and you can't cut away each piece and think that a change in one thing is not going to influence the others. Yeah, well, let's talk about it, Peter. You know, I have the benefit of chatting with you so often, and I really appreciate those conversations. But for our viewers right here, our listeners, you know, you have a great publication called The Book Report. It comes out every morning. To me, it's a must read because it really kind of keep me on the rails as far as what I should be focused on in macro land here. And just what you were just talking about, you had a note yesterday, you were calling it the co-joined fraternal triplets here. And it's the confluence of economy, markets, and monetary policy, which you were just 
talking about here. What do you think is going to be different in 2022 about that threesome that, you know, didn't play out, let's say, in 2021? Well, 2021 certainly had the benefit of all this monetary easing combined with good earnings and an economy that was coming out of COVID with the, you know, rampant and widespread use of the vaccine. So it had everything going for it. I think 2022, you have the opposite in the sense of monetary tightening, even though it will be gradual and it's certainly not going to be a mirror image of all that easing, but it's still a change in the rate of change of easing, where the liquidity spigot, and that will then likely influence asset prices, and not just stock prices, but potentially credit spreads and the value of a lot of different things. And then that will have then its spillover to the economy. Because keep in mind, monetary policy specifically with respect to interest rates directly influences interest rate sensitive parts of the economy, housing and autos. A change in interest rates otherwise doesn't really affect directly the economy like those two sectors. QE has no influence on the economy, as I said. It just lifts asset prices and helps the U.S. Treasury sell bonds. So now you have the potential opposite where you have tightening, potential influence on the the markets, which then can influence the economy. Because when you look at high-end spending, they're very dependent on the value of, of stock prices. They're very dependent on the value of home prices. So my point with this is that Investors sometimes want to separate it out. Okay, yeah, the Fed's doing ending QE, but who cares? Earnings are good and the economy is good. Let's buy stocks. And I'm making the argument that you can't separate it out, that they're all conjoined and how one gets influenced will have a direct impact on the other two pieces. No question about it, Peter. I'm so with you on this one and the wealth effect that's been created. And, you know, I've said it for a number of times. I mean, all you need to look you overlay a S&P chart with consumer confidence and they basically are stair-step with each other because whether people own a share of a stock or not, as the stock market goes higher, people feel wealthier. Again, regardless of whether or not they own stocks. And when people feel wealthier, they spend money. And when you have an economy that's 73% driven by people buying stuff, that's what you need to happen. You need people to feel good about things and they feel good about things when the stock market goes up. For me, it's as simple as that. And we learned that the hard way I think in October of 2018, when the Fed, in my opinion, correctly was going on a tightening and then a a reducing of the balance sheet. And we saw what happened from October, from basically Halloween until Christmas Eve. As Dan notes, the stock market went down 19.9% and the rest is history. But here we are. And to me, again, there are many important charts and we're looking at a 10-year now. This is telling a story. Now, I think we're headed towards 2%. I've thought that for a while incorrectly. And that moved down to 1.12%, got me off guard earlier this year. But we're right back above about 168 or so. What are your thoughts and what is this 10-year telling us, Peter? So there are definitely a lot of cross-currents here. And just for perspective, on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, before we really even heard of Omicron, the 10-year yield was 164. So here we are at 167, which is basically the market's way of saying, okay, Omicron scared us. We traded below 150 in the 10-year, and now we're not afraid anymore because we're going to get through this, and it's a mild cold and blah, 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 and you now have the move back to essentially where it was pre-Omicron Friday after Thanksgiving. But on the other hand, you have when the market knows when the Fed is tightening, you should be flattening the yield curve just on the assumption that things will slow, 
and the reverse being when the Fed is easing, let's steepen the yield curve because that's reflationary. So that's why we've actually seen a lot of flattening really since mid-June when the Fed said at their FOMC meeting that we are now beginning to talk about tapering. But I think when you take a step back, ending QE is one thing, but then raising interest rates, which is what the direct impact on demand is, is not going to happen until earliest March and maybe not till May. And even if they raise three times in 2023, even if, I'm sorry, 2022, even if they raise three times next year, the Fed funds rate is going to be all of one and a half percent. It's still going to be below the rate of inflation. So if you're a long end bondholder, you're saying, yeah, the Fed's going to tighten, but this is really not much tightening and inflation is going to remain well above. Therefore, real rates are going to remain very negative. And if that's how slow the Fed is going to go, well, I'm going to tighten for them. I'm going to raise long rates for them. Now, this all said, it does come in the context too, and I've argued that we can study the U.S. situation as much as we want, but where European bond yields go will also have a big influence on where U.S. rates go and how the ECB responds to the end of their QE and maybe at some point raise interest rates the end of this year, likely next year, try to get out of the negative spot that they're in. That's going to have an impact. So we're all in this sort of interest rate monetary madness situation together. And, and where rates go there will influence here. And we've seen a pretty short move up in German bond yields. The French 10-year oat, which just a few weeks ago was below zero, yep. is now above 20 basis points. We know we've seen a move higher in UK gilt yields as the Bank of England has raised rates. So I go back and forth between saying, yeah, logically, the 10 years should go higher because where inflation is and what I just said. But on the other hand, if they're tightening, yield curves typically flatten. But net net, maybe the yield curve flattens, but overall rates continue mm-hmm. to take higher across the curve. Yeah, I know that that's been Guy's view here. It's the technical setup is, is pretty interesting on a one and a two year basis. It's banging up against some overhead resistance here, almost to the penny if you look there and it gives uh, like a nice little support off of the summer lows. We got to talk about the dollar, the U.S. dollar index, the Dixie, Peter, because, you know, I go back to 2014 and 2015 when we were done with the taper and then we started to think about raising interest rates. And what happened there? The U.S. dollar ripped, right? Here's here's a 12-year chart. And we can, you know, go back and forth between these two, but it's really interesting. The Dixie went from 80 to 100. And since it broke out, you know, above that kind the 88 level, the prior high from 2010, it's really spent the better part of the last seven or so years above there, a bit in no man's land. Going back to the one-year chart though here, Peter, this is a pretty sizable move here. And we've seen it bounce off of technical support. You see it just bounced off its 50-day. What is your take on the Dixie and what are the implications on some other risk assets if we do see the Dixie break out above 97, which was that high over the last couple of months? Well, firstly, we know the Dixie, 70% of the Dixie is the euro and the yen. Now, the yen, I find over the past year, has been highly correlated to the price of oil because the Japanese import almost all of their energy needs, especially after closing most of their nuclear plants after Fukushima. So the higher oil prices go, the weaker the yen has gotten. And you can pretty much overlay that. So if, if I'm right, and that relationship is the reason why the yen has weakened, let's look at the euro. And you can look in this chart. It was mid-June that the Dixie bottomed here, and that coincided with the day that, as I mentioned, Powell said, we are now talking about tapering. 
Mm-hmm. So the dollar has really been an interest rate differential, a monetary policy differential metric. And the belief that, okay, the Fed is now getting ahead of the curve, particularly against the euro and the EC, I'm sorry, against the ECB, by definition, the euro. And therefore, the dollar has had this, this big rally. I think also, interestingly enough, from here, you can actually overlay the Dixie with the S&P 500. Because if the S&P 500 continues to do well and hang in there in the face of the end of QE and rate hikes, well, it just gives the Fed a green light to keep hiking because the tightening of financial conditions is a byproduct typically of higher interest rates. But if the stock market doesn't fall, the Fed can say, hey, the stock market is not bothered by what we're doing. Therefore, we can tackle inflation here. Mm-hmm. And if we tackle inflation, we can continue to raise. Therefore, the dollar can rally as stocks do because the stock market sort of giving the green light to the Fed. If, however, the tightening leads to a decline in the stock market and the Fed says, you know what, that we're seeing a tightening of financial conditions, we're only going to hike one or two times this year, not three or not even next year, well, then they back off because the market backed off, but then the dollar sells off as well. So that's sort of my new relationship that I'm now focused on is really is actually the S&P and the euro and watching that close relationship. 100%. You're spot on with that. Look, I mean, they've become a slave to the market. And right now they're sitting pretty because the market goes up every day. But that, you know, w- listen, we saw what happened in 2018 and we see how quickly markets can go down. And I think with each passing day, they sort of breathe a collective sigh of relief. There are a couple of things you want to talk about before you have to go. It's both gold and silver. I think you're passionate about both of them. One a little bit more so. Talk to us first about gold, though, Peter. So in the context of the inflation that we saw, Gold and silver obviously was very disappointing in 2021. But I think a lot of that had to do with the dollar rally on the belief that the Fed is going to be tightening through the end of QE and raising interest rates. And therefore, why do I want to own gold and silver if the Fed is tight? But I think what we've learned is while QE is ending, the path to higher interest rates, at least in the short end, is going to be very slow and gradual and that inflation is still likely to run well above where the Fed is going to set interest rates. And if you look at just inflation break-evens, the five-year break-even today is back to 3%. That compares with the five-year yield at 137, meaning deeply negative interest rates. And if you just overlay interest rates relative to where CPI is, you have negative interest rates that you last on the 1970s. So I think that the bare case on gold and silver, because the Fed is there to the rescue. I get it for last year, but I think that's sort of played out and it's not going to be the case. And I think gold and silver is going to resume its upward move higher and surprise people with the prices we're going to see, not just for the prices itself, but also the gold miners who are much better run businesses now than when they were and are very leveraged to the price. No doubt. I agree with you on that. But listen, I've thought that for a while. We'll see if this breakout is not a false one like we've seen so many times before. But the one I think you're really geeked up about, and maybe rightly so, is the one that we talk about not so often enough here on the macro setup is silver. Talk to me about the white metals we used to say. So silver is certainly a leverage play on gold with about half the demand for silver being industrial. That's now going into electric vehicles and solar and so on. But it's one of the few assets outside of individual stocks that have gotten beaten up. Maybe one 
big asset that's down 50% from its highs, not only in 2011, but 40 plus years ago back in 1980. So I'm really bold up on silver as a way to play another rally in gold and a Fed that, again, will be more scared by the S&P and will be less sort of emboldened to confront inflation, which will eventually lead to deeper negative real interest rates, a reversal in the dollar rally, and gold and silver are a great way to play that. Silver in particular, again, because of its leverage relative to gold. And I'm with you. And you look at this chart, you have you know the short-term double bottom. This is levels of support we've seen, obviously, since the fall of 2020. I'm with you on silver. I don't think enough people are talking about it. I think, unfortunately for silver, it got caught up in the whole Reddit craze earlier in 2021, and that probably was more of a death blow to them than anything else. But here we are. Nobody's talking about it except you. I want to be respectful of your time. I know you got a heart out. I want to thank you. You will absolutely be back, Peter. Thanks so much for joining Dan and myself. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Thanks, Peter. Always appreciate it. Thanks so much. Talk soon. So, Dan, you've obviously heard what he's talking about, and that leads us to the next commodity, obviously something that's important to CME Group and Futures is energy. We talk about it all the time. Here's a Wall Street Journal headline. OPEC allies agree to pump more oil, shrugging it off. Well, we'll see if that's going to have an impact on the price. And to Peter's point, the market is now looking past this latest variant. Yeah, well, and the market's looking past this increased production. If you think about it, crude's had this nice little bounce here. You and I were talking about it earlier in the week. If you look at you know WTI, that high up there in the futures is just above 80. It's near 82 or so. It's found some really good support over the last year. There have been some very volatile periods. We've had two 20% peak to trough declines, but then kind of seemingly bouncing to your point, Guy, that, you know, again, you you know, every time we push out the global reopening trade, it gives a lot of investors more confidence that the next quarter or the back half of the year will be the one. And therefore, they're not willing to kind of give up on this trade here. I don't know, man. I, listen, I hear all this talk about inflation. I think the most important thing to me is that real rates are deeply negative, as Peter just said on numerous occasions throughout that whole thing. So there's no way that rates are going up in a way and inflation is going to come down so sharply where we're going to have, you know what I mean, this kind of this situation where we're just all more comfortable, that we all realize that is kind of, um, you know, okay for risk assets. And when I hear things like, oh, they're as negative as they were in the 70s, that makes me a little bit nervous because you recall maybe when you were in those long lines for gas at the pump, guy Adami, that inflation ran rampant on all different sorts of commodities that affected consumers, not just businesses. No, no question about it. And listen, I do remember those days. You had the odd even days, depending on your license plate, when you can get gasoline. It was not particularly pleasant. This is a bit of a trade school, by the way. On the top left, if you're looking at the screen, you'll see CLG2. For you folks that are new to this, that means CL is crude. G is the uh, letter for the month of February. We can go through that at a later date. And two <laughs> is the back end of the year. That's 2022. So that's what we're looking at right here. Look, the all-time high in this contract was, I think, $82 or so. I want to say and on Halloween of last year or right around that. I think we're taking it out. We'll see. We've talked about you know the biggest trades for 2022. I think it's still going to be energy, which had a huge 2021. Obviously, that late summer sell-off didn't help but it got back off the mat. I know you have a different view, but that's what makes markets, Dan. 
Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, you got $5 higher, I got $5 lower in the next month or so. So we'll check back on market call macro on that here. And I think one thing is for certain is that just when you think this thing is about to break out in the chorus for $100 a barrel, oil is the loudest is when it kind of has those 10, 20% sell-offs. So we'll see. All right, guy, here's another one that I think, you know, again, when we're talking about the CME, our sponsor of Market Call Macro, they've really innovated here. They're the first to list Bitcoin futures back in 2017. A lot of people kind of highlighted as that as the high of that retail craze. They have innovated. They've done minis. They've really kind of focused on a product that's just not just for institutions, but retail can think about kind of hedging their Bitcoin or Ethereum, the ETH in futures too. Look at this chart right here. This is kind of like no man's land here, right? We're right in the middle of this one year range. We know that Bitcoin had a great year. It was up 60%, even though it sold off 30% from its November highs. It's just below that 200 day moving average. Again, in the middle here. What is your take on just the chart? Forget what you think about crypto as an asset class. You need to wait for it to meaningfully break that 200 day moving average, which is about 48,000 give or take. And when I say meaningfully break, I think a close above 50,000, I think we're going to take another run at those all time highs. I think a close below sort of 46,000, let's call it just to round it off. And I think we're going to take a run at the July low, which was either side of 30,000. But to trade it here, in my opinion, Dan, looking at the chart, you're just flipping a coin. Yeah, and I'll just say lastly, in ETH, this is one for the road here. You know, this one is down about a thousand points in future terms here, down about 25%. Shown some pretty good relative outperformance to Bitcoin, which is down a bit more in the same time period. You look at that chart, you see it above the 200 day moving average. I didn't even draw any lines here, but it's getting kind of tight there. And you might see a break one way or the other. Might you see a kiss of that 200 day and then kind of finding some support? Possibly, I prefer the ETH over the Bitcoin right here for a whole host of other reasons, but that chart looks very constructive to me. I'd love to see a little bit more weakness and find some support at the 200-day guy. Well, I wanted to be respectful of Peter's time. I want to be respectful of our audience's time. 30 minutes goes by like in a half an hour, Dan. It's pretty incredible. Market <laughs> Call has been brought to you by CME Group and Open Exchange. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to check us out every Tuesday live at 11 a.m. Our presenting sponsors, again, CME Group, and open exchange. Dan and I will be back on Thursday of this week with Market Call Street Research. Dan, we'll see you then. See you then, bud.